0: Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Tuesday morning, October 27th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy uh, as this crazy year keeps on going. Coming up today on the podcast is what I hope will be the first of a little mini-series of interviews with coaches who are entering their first year either at their program or first year uh, as a as a head coach uh, in 2020, dealing with all the challenges that 2020 has presented, uh, I think it uh, was a really interesting uh, little series and f- group of people to focus on. The first feature in this little hopefully continued mini series is Coach Maria Williamson. She is the first year head coach of the women's basketball program at the University of Chicago. It was a great conversation, really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully you guys all enjoyed it as well. Uh, before we get to that, the election, one week away from being over, still have time to make a plan, find your polling place, vote by mail, vote by Dropbox, do whatever it takes to vote because it's too important to sit out. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview from yesterday afternoon with Coach Williamson. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head women's basketball coach at the University of Chicago, Maria Williamson. She played her college ball at Bowdoin College for the legendary coaches Stephanie Pemper and Adrian Schibels, where she made four NCAA tournaments, including two runs to the Elite Eight, and was named first-team All-NESCAC her senior year. After graduating in 2009, Coach Williamson began her coaching career immediately as an assistant at Navy under Coach Pemper, and in 2013, she left Navy to join Dartmouth University, where she was the recruiting coordinator and defensive coordinator. In the summer of 2016, she took her first job in the Chicago area as an assistant coach at Loyola Chicago. And just over 2 months ago now, Coach Williamson was named the head women's basketball coach at U- at University of Chicago for her first head coaching position. I'm excited she's taking the time to join me today, Coach. How's it going?
1: It is great. Thanks for having me, David.
0: For sure. So kind of just getting right into it, where are you from and kind of how did you first start playing and falling in love with uh, with the game of basketball?
1: Yeah, so I'm from Portland, New Hampshire, so it's about an hour north of Boston, um, so grew up a lifelong Boston sports fan, and that's kind of one of the ways that I got into basketball. Um, my family has been diehard Celtics fans forever, and I have a twin brother, Jimmy, and um, we were born in 1986, which until 2008 was the last Celtics championship, so like we were, you know, two weeks old in Celtics championship banner gear and everything. So basketball has just kind of always been um, a part of us, really. Uh, My dad played, my mom was a huge basketball fan. Um, I have coaching kind of in my blood and teaching in my blood on both sides of the family. So sports has just always been a big part of kind of life for us, which has been really neat.
0: Yeah, my, my dad lucked out when he was at college at Tufts. Okay. He was in the mid-80s, and that was the okay. local nice. channel, and it was all Celtics all the time. And it was <laughs> the best team, potentially the best team of, of all time was that 86 team. So, Amen, uh,
1: that is right. Spent a lot of time watching that yes.
0: th- that game. But, so you're in high school in, in New Hampshire in the early 2000s. Yes. Were you just a basketball player, or were you a, a, a multi-sport athlete?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I played volleyball, basketball, and softball. Um, I kind of I played softball growing up as well, and then when I got into high school, um, just decided to try out volleyball. So kind of mm-hmm. went to a volleyball open gym, um, met our, the volleyball coach, who's this incredible man, Roy Swanson, who's still like one of my greatest mentors, which is funny, um, and really enjoyed playing volleyball all four years of high school. So, yeah.
0: Now. What was your recruiting process like? Did you narrow in on basketball or did you have an opportunity to play other sports? And kind of how did you go about choosing Bowdoin?
1: Yeah, so I really just stuck with basketball kind of the whole time. I probably could have tried to play a little bit of volleyball, um, but really was just hardcore basketball. I played AAU for the New England Crusaders, which was one of the reasons and one of the ways that I was able to be recruited like I was. Um, I started narrowing in on Bowdoin going into my senior year, kind of my junior summer senior year. Um, I said that I never wanted to go to school in Maine and my (laughs) parents were like, you know, my parent and, you know, Portsmouth is, you know, two seconds away from the border of Maine. So I'm like, I don't want to go to Maine. And my parents were just kept saying, you know, Bowdoin's one of the best schools in the country academically. And they just went to the final four, um, you know, not even just final four, they just went to the national championship game. Like you got to think about it. And so after kind of a long process, I narrowed to Bowdoin and NYU, and loved NYU almost didn't take my visit to Bowdoin but again my parents you know just told me I had to do it and so I went to Bowdoin and just fell in love and never looked back you know and I it's such an incredible community more than anything and I always say and it's really cheesy and kind of cliche but I chose Bowdoin because I went there and people said hi to me (laughs) you know I just it's really it's so simple right but you know there's something about feeling welcomed and I've never really forgotten that because I do think that is a big part of the Bowdoin community I know you've had some fellow Bowdoin polar on this podcast, have. David. we I are have. lighting it up. I love it.
0: Yes, well, the well, the coaching tree is expansive. Is that it's it it's insane. So, sometimes it's intentional and then sometimes it's completely unintentional.
1: <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, I love that. Now, the the number of us that are head coaches, I think, is more even more incredible. I don't think you see that at a lot of um NESCAC schools and a lot of schools in general you know so yeah no it's a pretty it's pretty
0: special so yeah as as a new york city native uh you know it's it's not the friendliest of of cities but i can definitely <laughs> see how more outwardly friendly uh people at like the dining halls and just anywhere around campus is yeah. is definitely a refreshing uh re- than the lower manhattan vibe <sighs> But yeah. so but so, you get on campus, it's, you know, end of August, very early S- September, and Coach Pemper is someone who, as you said, just made the national championship game. She's NESCAC coach of the year. She's building up this program to now it's not just one of the best in New England, but one of the best in the country. What was it like as that relationship changed to someone who was recruiting you to now, this is now your head coach, and now it's, hey, the the expectation isn't just that we're going to be good. The expectation is that we're going to be really, really good.
1: Yeah. That's a great question. You know, one of the things when I was being recruited was it made sure I went to some practices, which is super mm. helpful. Cause I got to kind of at least get more of a feel for what she was like in practice and just how demanding she was. Um, It was, you know, it was challenging in a really good way. I think, you know, going up NESCAC normally and non-COVID, right, can't start until November 1st. And so you're practicing or you're doing stuff on your own for like two months. And the routine at Bowdoin was really great because you were doing stuff pretty much five days a week. You were playing pickup, all this kind of stuff. And so the culture had been so well established that by the time I got there, it was the upperclassmen just like – running everything in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so that culture was established early as well as the stories of, okay, this is what stuff's going to be like on day one. And this is how it's going to be. And, um, you know, I've never had someone hold me, to a higher standard than Steph did. I mean, my parents obviously, but it's like my parents and Steph on the same level. Right. Um, she's just, she's so demanding and she knows in a really great way what she wants. And she, you know, is just going to do whatever it takes to get there. And her focus on development, um, was really in development of, you know, you personally and teen culture was, was the biggest thing. But yeah, that first year was tough, but it was really good. I mean, I, I think every freshman goes through it to a certain extent, you know.
0: Yeah. So. And also what every freshman goes through at schools like Bowden or right away at Wesleyan or now where you are at, at Chicago is not just you adjusting to college life, Sports wise, socially, but also academically, too, Bowdoin, one of the best schools of the country. I feel like I say that over and over again now. <laughs> but just how did you go about balancing the, the basketball part of things where you're playing five days a week, the expectations, the, the pressure, with also, you know, your econ teacher doesn't care that you're on the basketball team, right? It's, that's, yeah. your, that's their n- number one focus.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that was definitely one of the hardest things. I just remember being tired my whole freshman year. <laughs> tired, and I always say hungry, but, like, I had enough food. Obviously, like, the Bowden Dining Hall is, like, one of the best in the country, too. Yes. But I just remember being, like, tired, hungry, like, all the time. Um and yeah, I mean, I, I was just listening to Jill Pace's uh, podcast a little ago, a little bit ago with you, and she talked about her econ class in her first fall semester, and I will talk about my econ class the first fall semester. It crushed me. But <laughs> um, I know that was the example you used, too. But yeah, I think that's one of the things, you know, you, you go through high school, and obviously to get to a school like Bowdoin, you do really well academically. You know, you've probably had some challenges, but maybe not a lot. And then you get to Bowdoin, and the level is just raised so extremely. I mean, I'll never forget my... Um, one of the guys who lived across the hall from me my freshman year, he had a perfect SAT score and got a five on all of his AP tests except for one. And he took nine AP tests, (laughs) you know, like, and it's just, it's silly, right? Like that. Yeah. And so anyways, long story short. Yeah. It was, it was a tough transition, but it was good. And I didn't know, I knew I wanted to be a coach, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. And so Mm -hmm. I would say that was like a, you know, a challenge of my first year too. It was just trying to, figure out where what path i was actually going to go on um but yeah it was tough
0: and if anyone is interested in learning more about the food at bowden malcolm gladwell did a podcast i think (laughs) four years ago now that compared bowden to vassar and talked about how the the orientation it's a steak or lobster is your choice it made sound like a (laughs) five-star resort It ended up having (laughs) it ended up having the opposite effect on vassar because all the parents and alumni heard about how terrible the food was and so they ended up because one of my great friends played basketball there was like he would tell me about it didn't really believe him and then all the parents heard it and it was just like what is going on these kids are starving they're not eating anything so now they spend way more money on food and it had the complete opposite effect that gladwell
1: intended but but so so but so
0: the bowden gym was always one of my teammates and myself's favorite gym to go to during my time because of the polar bear outside uh <laughs> the the gym what was did you guys as a, as a senior prank ever consider stealing the bear
1: no no but i do have a quick funny so my my wife had never we've been together for a while but she had, this um Actually, during COVID, got to go to Bowdoin mm-hmm. um, socially distanced. And she, I kept telling her there's a taxidermy polar bear in yes. the moral gym lobby. And she's like, There's no way. Like, come on. That doesn't make sense. And I would Google image show or whatever. And then I finally, you know, we got to Bowdoin. We actually couldn't get in the doors, but we peeked through the, went the you know, the right window or whatever and she i thought she was gonna fall she's six four i thought she uh-huh. was gonna fall like flat <laughs> on her face she was like this place she's like you you know bowden is like is heaven on earth to me in so many ways and she was oh my gosh it was funny i've never heard the end of that
0: so, so yeah
1: the taxidermy polar bear i love it i love that you brought that up
0: so <laughs> i'm really interested in this because Bowdoin's women's basketball during that time. You guys are incredible, doing awesome, really successful, but obviously not every game you play is going to be against Amherst or Tufts where really someone at your same level. And just what was the player's perspective of being on such a good team? How did you stay motivated to bring the same level of intensity and focus to try to treat every game the same, even though we all know that they're not, when there's probably about five or so games on your schedule each year Where, if everyone brought their uniform, made the bus, and the bus showed up at the right place, you're going to (laughs) win.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we did so much goal setting, and Mm -hmm. those goals were just continually. I would say they just they just continually like were around our program. We talked about them a lot, uh, both short short term and long term. And I do think that helped us because it was a constant strive to getting better. And we knew, you know, even if it was a game that we were going to show up and potentially win, like if we didn't get better that game, it wasn't going to help us beat Amherst, right. Tufts, whoever it was eventually. Um, and that was just our mindset all the time. Um, and I think that's what's that is truly what separates championship cultures in so many ways is that like that short term focus with a long term goal in mind, even when it's you know your first, second game of the season and you're thinking about playing toughs in the Nescaq championship. Right. Um, I do think, yeah, that was that was a big separator for us for sure when it came to that.
0: Now, I, I believe it was the end of the 2008 season. Coach Pemper leaves and she gets the opportunity to go to Navy uh, to be the head women's basketball coach, and Coach Scheibels takes over. That was yep. going into your senior season. You were recruited by Coach Pemper, played for three years for her. What was that player perspective like of going through a coaching change so late in your college career?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It was it was hard. It was no doubt it was no doubt hard. And I've I actually said that in terms of even, you know, taking taking over the job at U Chicago. I've said that to our team a lot. Is like, you know, I get I get what you're going through you know when you have a coach who you really like and you've been super successful you know decide to move on like it can be challenging I think the neat thing is um so it was really challenging and then Adrian came in with just this renewed sense and re- like refreshed like vitality is the best way I can describe it I mean Adrian's style of play is really up tempo mm-hmm. she presses the whole game her defense is her cornerstone and now they score a ton of points it's evolved into that and so it was really neat in that transition to it took a minute for sure but you know to learn Adrian's style play and I was actually talking to Adrian about this the other day is I really think that's the reason we won the conference my senior year was because we had this different style of play we just had this like injected refreshed mentality going into it Um, and I really think it separated us I mean I'll never forget it you know we it's the, our NESCAC championship game and um, we're kind of like grinding it out against Amherst. And then Jill Pace, like a freaking freshman, mm-hmm. you know, just took us down the stretch and we won, you know, and it was so cool. And that was part of Steph's culture, but it was, it was even a bigger part of Adrian's culture too, was to have just, you know, she plays a ton of people. It's just a fun system to play in. And I think that was a nice, like refreshing I don't know, addition for our, for my senior year when it, when at first I definitely felt like how was what's going to happen, you know, where do we go from here? So, um, it was a really positive change ultimately, which was really good.
0: So you had this great end to the senior season, but as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you said that you always wanted to coach in college. That was kind of always your, your mindset. And once you left college, you go to Navy, you're an assistant coach for coach Pemper. What was the adjustment like you're you know, 22 years old, right, out of graduation, adjusting from you're the one receiving the instruction from the coaches to now people are asking you, like, tell me what I should do and that you're not playing but now you're the coach. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I, I mean I think I was I, – I know I was really lucky that – it was an easier transition for me because I had just played for Steph.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: Steph was taking over a program at Navy where they were really, even though it was in their second year, still getting to know her. So one of my immediate roles when I got there was and we had another we had another former player on staff too one of Steph's former players Courtney Ruggles um and we definitely just like took the brunt of helping them adjust to Steph help, helping them adjust to her demands her style of play like all this kind of stuff um and I do think that was really helpful as a young coach that was really comforting to me because that's something that I could you know recite with my eyes closed all day um and so that was an immediate way that I felt like I could make an impact the other thing that was nice was that I played in practice us a lot,
0: okay. <laughs> and
1: so that was a really, I mean, they were, yeah. It was still like a little bit the prime of my playing career. Uh-huh. They were still building program, and so that helped a lot from a coaching perspective too. But it was tough, you know. Like I was essentially their peer in so many ways, um, and um, and it was challenging, but it was it was really good. But I do think those two things helped a lot. Um, so yeah,
0: obviously you have the relationship with Coach Pemper from player to coach well at Bowdoin. Then it became, you know, former coach player where you can kind of talk more cash about more things going on in life. But now that you're working for her, what was it like from just a basketball perspective to kind of see behind the curtain for kind of all the, like, like, like the method to the madness? And then also yeah. just as, the, what was it like to have your relationship evolve to coworkers?
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. So... It was, it was good. I mean, I, that whole first year, you know, I would have teammates reach out to me and be like, have you learned why she does this? Have you learned why she does that? And it was really cool to start to, to, like you said, learn the methods behind her madness, especially in terms of motivation and the way that she motivates players. Um, that was really cool and really unique and something that I still, you know, keep really close to, um, close to my heart kind of to this day and it, it makes sense, right? Like she's, she's such a servant leader. And so being able to see that evolve on the other side, being uh, like working for her, being a coworker of hers was really cool. And and I definitely earned a whole other level of respect for stuff um, when it comes to that. And then, yeah, becoming coworkers was, was really interesting. Um, I think one of the things that made it the easiest was that she treated me as her equal mm-hmm. which she definitely did not have to do um but she really did and she really brought me along um she definitely challenged me and helped me to super high standards but and that's what felt like it was still the same as as me being a player and almost made that transition to being a coworker easier because it was just I knew what to expect um but yeah, it was it was an interesting transition, and I mean, she's still you know one of my number one mentors to this day, and so it's you know it was former player to coworker to now friend and mentor is really neat. Kind of to think about that over the years too.
0: One of your job titles or responsibility was recruiting. That's you know the lifeblood of college sports, college college, But recruiting to Navy is very unique. Obviously, it's a huge plus as annapolis is one of the best universities in the entire world it's free and everything but it's very difficult to get into and obviously it comes with the five-year service requirement for if you graduate what was it like trying to recruit to navy uh was your list is so much smaller was it when you go to these tournaments just like you just point like i can't i can't recruit her i can't recruit her Mm -hmm. just just like what was it all like
1: yeah, that's a good question. So it was, you know, it was really challenging in a really unique way because you had to be more creative than most places. You know, mm-hmm. we still, when we went to events, would just pick players we liked, and then the whittling down happened pretty quickly of their interest in Navy, you know, any other things that would make them, you know, just not. I mean, either really interested or not interested, um, in the Naval Academy, we actually had huge lists of kids because of that, you know, mm-hmm. so we would recruit 50 to 75, um, sometimes a hundred kids at a time, because that was what so the, you know, the military academies, as I'm sure you know, have a bigger coaching staff just for recruiting. Like yeah. the reason they have it is just for recruiting. Um, and so that was that was a huge benefit for me as a young coach because, you know, in most times as a young coach, I would have been the director of ops, the video coordinator, but I was able to be at Navy as an assistant literally because of that rule. Mm-hmm. So I was able to jump right into recruiting. I always say that, you know, the... People that we recruited that were the most successful at Navy were selfless and had a chip on their shoulder, um, and I think that's still true to this day. I mean, we won three straight championships there, and a lot of it was behind you know one or two classes that just literally refused to lose. And I do think the the, the people who are the most successful at the academy in general have that same kind of mindset. Um, and so it was it was really neat to recruit those kind of motivated young woman to, uh, to the Naval Academy where it's 20% woman, mm-hmm. you know, so you always felt like you were kind of making a difference, which was really, really unique and cool. And honestly, like set me up for the rest of my coaching career, sort of without me knowing that at the
0: time, but now, yeah,
1: it was a neat experience.
0: Now, personally, you went from Bowdoin, which is a liberal arts school to Navy, yeah. a service academy. Almost like a potentially complete opposite in terms of cultures of the schools, Definitely. right? What yeah, was that absolutely. like going from the super loose liberal arts environment to the very <laughs> strict, rigid service academy?
1: Yeah, it was, it was unique. I know I keep saying that word, but it was so unique. And one of the, one of the ways that I always describe it to people is the, one of the first things they teach you at Navy as a student is followership. You know, and at a place like Bowdoin, you know, you're your own leader, lead the charge, lead, yeah. the rep, lead all that. Right. Like you can do, you know, and you don't really learn about followership. And at Navy, it's just you are a follower for a, for your first year, at least. Um, and so that was a really powerful lesson for me as a 23 year old who thinks I can go take over the world. That Like you just got to fall in line for a second, you know. And it wasn't necessarily the way Steph ran her program. It was just a really interesting – it's one of the ways the academy works. And I think the genius of it in a lot of ways is you have to learn followership to be a great leader. Um, And so that was – I would say that got me, like, in line pretty quickly. But it was interesting. You know, it's exactly the way you described it, the super liberal environment to a really tight, constrained – Um, kind of academy so but it was interesting you know one of our philosophies as coaching staff was to really help these women feel like they could kind of go beyond those confines Um, and so that was cool kind of meeting them halfway and figuring out how to still how to empower them to think you know even more than the military academy and what they could do and um, it was it was really cool
0: so you jumped to the ivy league from the patriot league uh going to dartmouth was it easier at all to recruit to dartmouth you know it's closer to where you're from and in, in new hampshire but it's still one of the best universities in the entire world was was it harder to recruit to them because there's no scholarships or even though the navy doesn't have scholarships it's free just like what yeah. was that difference like with being the recruiting coordinator at dartmouth with navy
1: yeah it was um i, I always said one of the first things was you know one of the things that makes Ivy League recruiting a little bit easier and easy is not the right word is that you at least remove the service component you know the service Mm -hmm. component is greater than anything else when it comes to military academy versus Ivy League um, for sure and it was you know, the jump, the Patriot League was really good when I left it. And the Ivy League was a top 10 league in the country at that time, too. So it was the, one of the neat parts of recruiting was you went to just recruiting some of the best players in your region, but certainly in the country to try to raise level as fast as possible because you had Harvard, Princeton and Penn, especially at the time, getting some top 50 players in the country to play mm. in that league. So that was a whole different challenge from a competitive standpoint was how, you know, and I was coming in with new head coach Belko Klonis, who was taking over that program, and so we were just trying to figure out what's the style, of, like, how's what's the style of play going to be? How are we going to recruit to this style of play? What niche can we get in recruiting, and how do we make that happen? You know, I went to, and I'm, I always say this was not the most efficient approach, but like my first year in the Ivy League, I visited seventeen different states. <laughs> you know, and part of it was trying to figure out what our niche was as right. we're building this program. You know, could we go to Texas? Could we go to Iowa? Where can we go? go to Ohio? Do we go to California? Like, where are we going to go that these kids are going to be interested in Dartmouth where maybe we aren't recruiting against other Ivy League schools all the time um, and they want to come to Hanover, New Hampshire? You know, so there were different levels of challenge um, that went into it. The, The no scholarship part is obviously one of the greatest challenges I always say like you, you know, Ivy league recruiting, you get personal really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, cause all of a sudden you're looking at your recruits, parents tax returns and asking them if they can fill, fill out their, you know, supplement for the business that they own that you right. never would have known in, in normal recruiting. So, um, so yeah, it was, there were two very unique challenges, but I, yeah, it was, it's interesting to compare them.
0: Now you were also, besides from all of your recruiting responsibilities, you were also in charge of the defense at, at Dartmouth just what were just at the, you know, the core defensive beliefs or philosophies that, that you try to bring to uh, the big green.
1: Yeah. So I was really lucky that, that coach bell gave me that responsibility in my second and third years there. It was her way to help, you know, I think make our staff more efficient for sure, but also to help me grow and to really give me a voice um, on our team and in in just the basketball development. So, you know, our biggest things were just that we were going to be you know, really tough and disciplined defensively and that our effort was going to be better than anyone else. You know, so we always, I think one of the hallmarks of things we did was we had a defensive warm up every day that went one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four and five-on-five all the way up to a concept. And so, you know, once you add that together, that's 25 or 30 minutes a day that you're just grinding it out defensively. And I think that really helped or did really help our mindset and mentality around defense. You know, it's like, if you can play 30 minutes of defense like that and all those scenarios every day, no, regardless of what you were doing. And we were just playing, you know, regular help to helper. Um, you're going to be tougher. You're going to rebound better. You're going to know just your stuff more than, than most people. So that was a really big hallmark of our defense. I would say for sure was just that consistency that led to the toughness and being so disciplined.
0: Now how would you describe what toughness or discipline is on defense? Is it never jumping to contest a three-pointer? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, just always being in your gap? Because those are broad terms but like but like what are the like what does it mean to be a tough defender or a disciplined defender?
1: Yeah, I mean discipline to me is all about like the way you close out and the way you decide to guard your person. Right. Like are you on your closeout, you give a top foot and all of a sudden they can beat you and now your teammates have to bail you out. You know, that's that's like was really our hallmark of discipline I would say is like and you can call it like guard your yard, guard you know, everyone has different terms for it, but just if how, what's your discipline in your closeout? What's your discipline when you're looking at the person you are guarding and how are you, is that role going to help everyone else on the team be better? You know, the toughness part was definitely, I mean, it's, it is cliche, but the ability to rotate and help your teammates out, you know, charges obviously come up a lot, but the, you know, the toughness comes in the rotations, I think. You know, I think we always would say that you know, good rotations are selfless, mm-hmm. right? Um, bad rotations, someone just decides not to move, right? Or you don't communicate, but good rotations are selfless and ultimately lead to good toughness. Cause now your teammate gets beat maybe because they were undisciplined, but now you're there. And now, so your opponent is just always facing a they're always going to have to do something else to beat you, um, and so those were definitely. I would say, yeah, that would be like a more specific way to talk about it for sure. We just we never wanted teams to beat us on their first attack. They were going to have to finish. They were going to have to find a way to have a second or third attack to beat us. Um, and those, you know, two things I would say were kind of the biggest part of
0: it. So going into a game week, you're playing Princeton. Let's let's say. How yeah. would you prepare, like the game's on Friday, it's Monday morning, how are you preparing? Are you watching every single bucket that they've scored all season because, are you watching every set because, you know, you can't take away 100% of everything that they do because the kids will just, you know, and you're, will just, your mind will explode. But just right. so, but just, so, how would you focus on preparing for them and, and trying to take away certain things?
1: Yeah, so the way, this was the next with me, you split it up too, so because I focus on the defense. I watched all of our opponent offense. And then our other assistant, Addie Basir at the time, she was focused on the off- our offense, so she would focus on the other team's defense. And so I would just, like, get after it with watching sets. I would watch their makes, their misses. So synergy, obviously, you know, is one of the mm-hmm. best things that's ever come to basketball. And so I would watch all their makes, all their misses. I would watch all their player personnel makes and misses. I would just watch different tendencies throughout a game and track you know they run you know five out this first time next time down the floor they're running chin offense whatever it is you know and so just try to find all of those different patterns and then whittle that down to you know five things that you give the team you know whether it's tendencies or plays or however you decide to do it um yeah, that would be kind of how we did it. So we would – so like if for, for a week, for example. So Monday, you're pretty much like watching film and shooting because they're still recovering from the weekend. And then Tuesday, you go into – you know, I would, we always did like concepts and sets from both teams, right? So we'd pick like if Princeton mm-hmm. and Penn were together, what are some common concepts that both of them would do? We do that on Tuesday. And then Wednesday and Thursday, it would be, you know, just prep for Princeton. So um, those Ivy game weeks, the, the prep was – it was really intense.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: and I think unique to anything else that you know, I think it still blows people's minds when they learn that the Ivy League plays Friday, Saturday. They're like, mm-hmm. a Division One team does that, and you're like, yeah. And it's really got like, at this bit, best universities in the country. do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's intense, but yeah, it's it's um it's a good challenge, and yeah, it's one of the ways that I would say like my basketball game grew so much.
0: So. Now you mentioned principles, you know, you know, tough. Discipline, effort—you know. Obviously, you have to make sometimes adjustments on the game plan. Someone you're, you're playing against has a star player, a really creative offensive player, just a super talented player. Would how would you go about game planning for that specific player? Would you go sometimes feel like you would have to go away from the principles and, and make adjustments, and just kind of how did you balance trying to stick with what you guys did at Dartmouth versus hey this this player is really really good. We may have to change some things up.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So we, you know, a lot of the ways that we would do that would be the way we defended them off the ball, you know, so if they were, you know, if, the, say, the ball's at the top of the key and they're in the left corner, you know, we would say you don't help to the ball side penetration because they're a great shooter or whatever it is. Um, we would change that a lot. You know, in the post, we didn't always double a ton, but that's where we would change some philosophies, mm-hmm. too. We always worked on, you know, digging, which a lot of teams do now, digging the post and try to make it hard to make them pass out of it. A lot of times we just would try to focus – just on whatever their weaknesses were and try to exploit those as much as we could. Um, But a a player had to be just an incredible, incredible player for us to change our game plan that much. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So no, but that is a good question, but that's, yeah, we would, like I said, guard wise, it would be just focus on their off ball defense and then in the post, just make them pass it out normally.
0: So you're sitting on the bench during the game. Something happens. What is the one thing That would drive you the most (laughs) crazy when watching your defense you know because obviously the players are trying to do their best but also the offense is there to try to score too was it just someone just making unconscious like unconscious shots was it you know someone missed a (laughs) rotation like like what would drive you like the most crazy Uh,
1: an undisciplined closeout I think it's just an undisciplined closeout is like one of the things that players have the most control over, and so when you you know get stuck in a gap, and you decide to fly out at your player, you know on your toes and with your hands in the air, and they can just drive right by you. It's it's brutal. You know that could be like the greatest dagger. So yeah, no, I th- I've always thought you know an undisciplined closeout is um, is not one of the more selfless things you can do. So yeah, no doubt that would be it. Yeah, so, I mean a bad rotation is brutal, but an undisciplined right. closeout is is the worst. I think.
0: Yeah. Did, did you ever feel helpless sometimes when someone is going crazy or the team's going crazy and you're just like, look, we've tried everything nothing left to do
1: pretty much. Yeah. And then you're just like, okay, we need to go on an offensive run. Right. That's where it gets to that point. You're like, okay, so now maybe if we just go on our own run, they'll get tired. And yeah, no, uh, totally a hundred percent, especially with some of, you know, and the Ivy league, we just had some really high octane offenses Mm -hmm. that we had to play against. So yeah, no, without a doubt.
0: So I think it was the summer 2016. You leave Dartmouth. You go to Loyola Chicago. The first job in the Midwest. What kind of drew you to the the university? Given that you're a Northeast uh, person through and through, grew up in New Hampshire, yeah. Bowdoin, you know, Annapolis, Maryland. You know, that's the East, right? Not necessarily right. The exactly. Northeast, just but then, a little
1: further south. Yeah. But then, but then back
0: to New Hampshire. What what kind of drew you to Loyola sh- Chicago?
1: Yeah, so you know, the, I would say there, you know, there are probably three things. One was um, Kate Doctor was the head coach, and then this was another first-time head coach to be working for. And I got to know Kate when I was at Dartmouth; she was an assistant at St. Bonaventure. And we went up to um, Coach Bell, and I went up to um, St. Bonaventure to learn more about their offense because we ran the same offense as them. And so that was I'd known Kate for a little bit because of that, and um, I just really believed in her just as a person and was excited to see the path she would take as a coach. Um, and just, yeah, she was an incredible player. And so that was, it kind of all went into that. And then, you know, Loyola is a really good school. I was curious to recruit in a city, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I was curious what that would be like. I'd always recruited the Midwest at Navy and Dartmouth. So I had connections out here. Um, it felt good about that, but wanted to see what it would actually be like to recruit out here. And then was super curious, and this is probably the obvious one, to actually work at a scholarship school mm-hmm. and see how that would change the dynamic of recruiting, team culture, any of that kind of stuff. Um, and definitely learned from all three of those things from being out here. But those are the big motivations for sure.
0: And you were also at the school when it became nationally known During the men's team 2018 Final Four run under Coach Porter Moser, Sister Jean, everyone was in love with the Loyola Chicago men's basketball team. They were everywhere. Just what was that like watching that run that they went on as a member of the community? Were were there signs in November or December that they were like the best, you know, their their practices were insane? Or were you just as shocked (laughs) as the rest of us?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would say I was just as shocked as the rest of <laughs> um, of everyone. But they had such special seniors. I mean, that was the hallmark no matter what throughout that whole year was their group of seniors were just locked in, laser focused. No, literally nothing was going to stop them. Again, it sounds super cliche, but they mm-hmm. were – I have not been around such a special group of seniors as that crew. And they just believed – and that's one of the hallmarks of Porter's program is his culture and the way he gets his guys to believe in themselves and each other is different and so special. And you saw that just on the highest display um, in that year. Um, You know, it was incredible. I mean, Sister Jean is, she's still like an icon in a lot of ways. I actually just unpacked her bobbleheads from my car today. (laughs) You know, like I, yeah, I mean, at one point in in the final four run, the men's team had, I think it was their elite eight, going to their lead day press conferences, the men's team had had 5,000 stories written about them and sister Jean had had 25,000 stories. Yeah. About her. <laughs> so it was, I mean, there will never be anything like that in my life again. It was, um, it was, it was pretty incredible.
0: So this past summer coach, uh, Chris who is who was at Chicago leaves, she gets the Illinois tech job. And now, A university 30 minutes away, depending on Chicago traffic, had a head coaching (laughs) opening. You're not that far away, but what was the interview process like for University of Chicago with all the COVID protocols and just rules in place?
1: Yeah, it was was interesting. It was all on Zoom. Um, and I felt lucky because it was, so there were three or four rounds, but I've, I felt the most lucky and you, and you said it in the 30 minutes is that, you know, as the, as the interview process went on and I started to feel better about the position and, you know, better meaning like that, I really had a chance that they were taking me seriously. I drove down a couple times to actually walk around the university, which I felt really lucky about. Um, cause that's obviously not normal and, or wasn't normal in COVID times at all. Um, so it was, but it was interesting. I mean, I didn't meet our interim AD in person until I had accepted the job. <laughs> right. You know, I accepted the job on Zoom or on FaceTime. I can't remember one or the other. Um, and then met her, you know, a couple of weeks later when I went down for a tour, Rosie Rush. She's amazing. And um, yeah, and I, so it was different, but it was, it was really cool. You know, was, I think Zoom, as we've all learned, has added a whole different part to our life lives that'll probably never go away in some ways now. So right. um, yeah, it was different.
0: So do you, I think the official announcement was the 27th of August. The University of Chicago is really unique in that you guys do quarters and not semesters or trimesters. So the fall semester, so the fall quarter one starts usually at the end of September. So it was about a month, right, in a traditional year before students would be back on campus. What was that like? You get the job and you see all your former Bowdoin teammates who are now coaches welcoming everyone back to the crazy new normal it is now to waiting a month to bring people back to Chicago and just what the COVID protocols are there.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it was a lot on zoom. It was, you know, I got the job, like you said, it was a public on August 27th. And that night I had my first zoom call and then we just went right into, I would say zoom land right after that with weekly zoom meetings. And we split up into accountability groups, which was really neat. That was one of the Things the team had talked a lot about was more accountability, how to create that accountability, and so that was a really kind of cool structure we put into place that we still have in structure now, and I think will be will be in place for a while. So yeah, it was Zooms for a lot for a month really until they got back, um, and then we've done you know some different basketball film stuff. We've used our you know Fit Chicago Fitness Center to do some virtual hit classes with their instructors, which has been really cool. Uh, because you know, so U Chicago has every every student is welcome back to campus. Mm-hmm. Um, most classes are remote, like a lot of places. Everyone's getting tested weekly, uh, once weekly, and so our first practice is still coming up on November second. Okay, so we've had you know a month to get back and acclimate. Um, you know, doing some different conditioning. We had our mile test over the weekend, which they our team did really well, which was really encouraging. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been different and unique for sure.
0: Now, how have you guys approached this past month with everyone being on campus as as a team? As you know, during your time at Bowden and at every school, it's the traditional fall is like you you know what date practice starts in the NESCAC. For me, it was November first. You're like spending the whole yeah. fall getting ready for November first. Now, not knowing exactly when things would be back for practices or or anything like that, how did the you, uh, Chicago women's basketball program, approach this fall in terms of workouts?
1: Yeah, so we you know it was one of the reasons that we test. to be honest was to try to give our team a marker to train for mm-hmm. and so that was something that we're like okay so if you can condition you know these five days a week this will help you prep for our mile tests and eventually for our encore test we'll have later in november but um and then we had some strength stuff and then we actually really encouraged our players to do a lot of circuits you know, in terms of getting their endurance up, um, just doing something different for 20 to 40 minutes kind of every day. You know, circuits have become something so popular and, you know, yeah. now, you know, hit is something that you hear all the time. And so that was something that I think has been really helpful. We just we kind of called it like a choose your own adventure strength program to a certain extent, <laughs> um, just to try to, like, lighten it up a little bit for them, too. But encourage them to, you know, get together as best they could, um, because, you know weight rooms and all that aren't as normal we have a reservation system in our um, in our weight room which is working great and makes you know just you have to be a little bit more um scheduled to get your time in and stuff so it's been cool that get doing the mile tests on on saturday felt like a really big accomplishment because we were able to do it socially distance with masks on and you know the the weather cooperated and it it just it felt really good cuz it felt like they had you know they've worked a month to get to that point and so right. it felt like something they could finally check off the
0: list which is important almost every coach if, if you ask them what goes into a great culture or program it's it's like it's communication and relationship building Right. And you've had to do so much of that over Zoom, which it's everyone's favorite thing now to talk about how Zoom <laughs> fatigue and Zoom isn't the real thing. Right. What, <laughs> what have you been allowed to do in person this, this fall to try to lay the groundwork for the relationships with the members of the women's basketball program at Chicago? Is it, because can you have lunches or meetings in your office or is it really still a lot on Zoom?
1: So it was, it's definitely been a lot on zoom. Um, we got lucky with some late, pretty decent Chicago weather. And Mm -hmm. so actually I was able to have, you know, outdoor meetings in the quad became a popular thing for me for a little bit, which was really nice just to be able I mean, you know, the conversations lasted longer in person, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so that's been nice, but it's been a lot of Zoom calls, Facetiming. I would say even a lot more texting than I normally would do, just to try to check in with them as much as possible and meet where they are. Because, like you said, like that relation relationship building and connecting is is one of the biggest things. I mean, when we when I first got the job, our three you know goals for September were um, communicate, compete, and come together. You know, and so that's been our three kind of Cs since then too. Um, but that's, that emphasis on communicating and coming together has been just a huge, um, huge part of it, but it's been, you know, I, you always have to be intentional about relationship building. I think you, like I've had to be even more intentional about it now that it's not in person and just like, Hey, Oh, you're in your office. I'll come by Mm -hmm. and say, hi, you know, it's more of, okay, I need to send this text because I know they have a midterm today and I want them to know I'm thinking of them. So, um, but it's been good i i I definitely have really enjoyed
0: it and on the flip side, all coaches say that they can't do it themselves, even if sometimes mm-hmm. they think that they can when their assistants frustrate <laughs> them. How have you gone about building out your coaching staff uh given but based on the short timeline of when you got officially hired to you know now when it's you have two assistants right now on, listed on on the website, just what was that hiring process like for for those people to to join your staff?
1: yeah so Michelle Billick and Dolly both actually were on the staff last year too, and so they both decided to stay, which really made my hiring pretty easy and mm-hmm. Um, and quick, Michelle had been at, has been at U Chicago for two years, knows recruiting really well, knows the team really well, and just knows the university so I'm super excited that she decided to stay it's made my transition so much easier um, and Dolly is our volunteer assistant, so she has a full time job and she played at MIT. And is also, you know, helping us out and super committed to helping us out. So I feel really lucky. They've been the most helpful in terms of our team and just building relationships with our team. Right. You know, we've been, we've been able to split it up with our weekly check-ins with our kids. And I think that's been really helpful too. So it's really like an all hands on deck approach. Um, But yeah, they've been, they've been awesome. I'm
0: super lucky. So you did this when you were at Loyola Chicago, but now at University of Chicago, you know, two schools with Chicago in it, but different parts of the city. What is it like recruiting to Chicago where with University of Chicago, you're really in the city and a lot of people hear things about Chicago or hear things about city life that may be true, but it all but but more frequently it is not true. How do you kind of talk to concerned parents when you're recruiting about like, yes, they're gonna be in Chicago and it is safe, you know, you can do this. We're right next to Hyde Park. Like, how do you kind of break down those perceived uh bad uh, stereotypes of you know city life to t- to try to get really smart talented players to buy in and, and join your program
1: yeah so we talk just a lot about you know the net of safety that's around you Chicago you know we have the you know the city police force and then we have the University of Chicago police force which is a big deal the other thing that I, that we talk about a lot is that the university takes up a large part of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, which is really cool. So I actually we moved down to Hyde Park from I was used to, we used to live up by Loyola, and so now we're actually in Hyde Park, five minutes away from the university. And we always say that we just feel like we're in the university all the time, right. which is actually really neat um, from a community standpoint. Is it such a caring and just? all-encompassing community and so you know it's kind of all hands on deck when it comes to safety which does make parents feel a lot better for sure you know and we just we also just give it would be like going to any city Mm -hmm. you know the general safety you know don't walk around with your headphones in don't walk and text you know all those kind of things that you know kids sometimes do and sometimes don't do um but yeah, you know that's those are the really the big things we talk about. Um, but it is it's it makes a huge difference that the university is such a large part of this community, um, and that you have that same access to the city. I think really kind of ties it all together, especially when it comes from safety concerns and all that kind of stuff. So
0: for sure, because it's very different going to college in Chicago than brunswick maine boat is it's it's like a completely (laughs) different challenge right it totally is like you know one of the huge perks of chicago is you can tell your players yes you can order sushi at 11 o'clock at night and it will actually show up and not kill you right like
1: yeah exactly yeah and you know it's the university of Chicago is such an amazing place because of the community that it is. Um, and it, it really sets itself apart. And that's where in some ways it reminds me of Bowdoin a much different way, but it, it's incredible that, you know, Bowdoin's a school that's 1200 kids. Chicago is a lot more than that. Yeah. University of Chicago is a lot more than that, but they have really similar community feels, which has shocked me in a really great way about Chicago. Um, and I think also puts a lot of parents' minds at ease too, but it's it's that's that's been yeah, that's been a really nice surprise
0: so the u a a is the only in my mind real national league in Division three yeah,
1: for sure
0: and one of its league members this week, Brandeis in Massachusetts announced a few days ago that they have decided to not play winter sports this year. Are you concerned at all about the prospects of not having u a a play? Just given that how spread out everyone is with Emory in Georgia and NYU in New York and just Rochester up in upstate New York and just that you traditionally have to fly to all these schools and obviously flying during the pandemic is is definitely a risk. Are you concerned about UAA play may not happen this, this winter?
1: Yeah. You know, we're kind of, we're really just trying to take it one step at a time when it comes to that. I think it's, um, it's been interesting The UAA so far has done a really good job trying mm-hmm. to create solutions, um, which has been really encouraging. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been talking to our team a lot about, and like, like I said, we start practice on November 2nd is, you know, our focus is to win November, you yeah. know, and if we can win November, then whatever the UAA decides will be okay. Yeah. You know, because we're going to get better in that. And I think that's the, the approach you have to take. Cause like you're saying, like, things change all the time you know things can change tomorrow for all we know when it comes to any sort of season so um we're trying to stay optimistic as best we can and really just trying to you know hone in on on the short-term focuses we can do so we will see
0: yes one one of the solutions i was brainstorming that i heard talked about is just fewer flights if you go down just have everyone go to one destination and kind of just for a week during a break play everybody and then so it's just fewer flights it's not a bubble but it's as is as yeah. you can get
1: get to it yeah yeah and i think i mean you're starting to see that with some of the bigger event spaces you know like wide world of sports i think announced today with men's events that they're not going to be able to host them and so i think a lot of these places and schools are trying to figure out how can we create our own you know a bubble even if it's four teams meeting for a weekend yeah um it, it certainly is a safer solution that's for sure
0: and so and luckily as People love to to point out to my you know sometimes northeast NESCAC bias is that the Midwest has tons of awesome Division three basketball programs yes. on the men's and women's <laughs> side. So there's a lot of local <laughs> opponents for everyone to play, even if yeah. if the schools allow and even if conference play made it happen because yeah. the COVID situation in Georgia or in uh, s- someplace else is is not uh, is not able to fly or, or happen like yeah. like that. On a Definitely. On a macro level, Coach, as we get to the end here, you, you've mentioned a couple of your mentors from your high school volleyball coach to Coach Pemper, Coach Scheibels. Who are some of your other idols in the coaching industry where you're like, if they're doing a Zoom webinar, you're signing up as soon as possible? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. So I'm, my, um, head coach at Dartmouth, coach bell is just incredible when it comes to leadership. And so she's, she's someone who I always will listen to anytime when it comes to that, you know, my, my current, you know, I would say obsession for lack of a better word is I'll sign up for like any webinar that has to do with transition offense. And so I'm a huge, huge Cheryl Reeve fan at with Minnesota links. Um, really big fan of hers, really big fan of James Wade with the Chicago sky, our hometown team. Um, he's just done some incredible things culturally, with them so far and just with their pace of play and the way they play. So um, I love the WNBA. I would definitely give them a big shout out for kind of any webinar that you're talking about too. Um, Kelly Graves at Oregon is really fun to watch because of the way they play and how free they play. Um, I grew up a massive Pat Summit fan. Obviously she's not around anymore, but she shaped a huge, huge part of my coaching career. So if someone is speaking about Pat Summit, I am probably gonna listen as well.
0: <laughs> so So you know, the, the WNBA bubble just wrapped up the Seattle Storm, won their WNBA championship, Sue Bird, her fourth title. Yeah. The nice part about the WNBA is that it's on during the summertime, so it's not it's not conflicting with, with your season, but when you sit down to watch their games going on in the bubble this this past year, whether it's the WNBA games, whether it's an NBA game or just another college game, can you turn that coaching brain off and just sit down and enjoy the game as as a fan would, or are you always watching basketball with, hey, that transition set, I got to rewind that and jot that down because we could run that?
1: Yeah yeah i think you know i definitely try to turn my coaching brain off at times and mm-hmm. that there's always something that'll happen and you know oh wow they they set a ball screen that way or look at how they scored on that reversal or you know especially when it comes to special situations i think that's kind of like one of the most time most fun times to be a coach watching basketball but i try to watch it as a fan kind of as much as i can just because it's such a great game especially you know in our professional leagues um i think it's and mostly i will say i, I do turn i do try to turn my coaching brain off when i'm watching the celtics even though like i love brad stevens i just like really try to be a celtics fan and get into my favorite players and be mad at the ones that aren't playing hard you Uh know like i really try to you know zone in when it comes to them
0: how how difficult was it watching new new hampshire native duncan robinson (laughs) but celtics killer friend of the podcast duncan robinson Uh Just brutal. torture you in the Eastern Conference Finals.
1: David, it was brutal. I mean, and he's not only is he New Hampshire, he grew up in the town. It's a, t- it literally is a, he grew up on like an island attached to the sports yeah. with New Hampshire, you know? Like, it was brutal. One of his, like, yeah, there's like some family connections, and anyways, yeah, I'm so happy for him though. Like, the, how cool is that? Because you know, I know he went to Michigan, but real D three baller out there, like doing his thing, it's pretty incredible. But torture. I mean, how is he not a Celtic? Like, can we talked about that for like four seconds. So, anyways, I mean, you're I mean, a New Yorker, so you don't have it. Like, yeah, but anyways,
0: well, I'm, I'm a I'm a New Yorker, so I'm so I'm stuck with the Knicks. But watching <laughs> watching the the games, it was it was a little annoying because you know every game they have to treat the audience as if they this is the first oh, yeah. time they're watching so they have to tell everyone's story <laughs> okay. the same way of jimmy butler was homeless and he faxed from mcdonald's and duncan Robinson went to d3 he started at williams yeah. college and yeah. it was it was really That's cool so true. someone wrote a story about what you were talking about about duncan's family back in new hampshire was obviously watching games rooting for him and everyone around them as yeah. celtics fans, and they're very they were very loud watching and everyone's like, "What are you doing they're like uh he's he's my brother like <laughs> <Yeah>. sorry." <laughs>
1: I know, and it's like, you know, for true Celtics fans, too, it's, you know, the Pete was obviously with Pat Riley and all that. So, like, how can you root for the Heat? And then it's Duncan Robinson. So, right. yeah, no, I mean, I think he's, you know, Matt Bonner is another, you know, New Hampshire great mm-hmm. who was a shooter and made his career in the NBA. And I really hope Duncan can do the same and would love if Duncan could find his way back to Boston. I mean, I think that'd be really cool, but we'll for see.
0: Sure. So, Coach, I really appreciate all the time. So I, was, I want to wrap up with five rapid-fire questions in the podcast
1: all right
0: so number one your favorite drill
1: oh full a three-on-three full court
0: court. okay who is the best player you ever coached against
1: oh best player ever oh Alyssa thomas
0: okay where did she go
1: she went to Maryland. Maryland. So we played him in the first round of the NCAA tournament when I was at Navy. And she's a mon—I mean, she's a five ten post in the <laughs> NBA right now. Like she's a monster. She's amazing.
0: We talked about this a little bit earlier, but just general pet peeves as as a coach.
1: Oh yeah, lack of discipline, um, laziness. Yeah, no, not you know, inability to listen. I would say and probably the big ones.
0: Number four. Your favorite part of Chicago.
1: Oh, I love Andersonville on the north side. It's one of my, just my all-time favorite places. Okay.
0: And last one, if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. What would I change? Probably something with the charge circle. I'm not sure what it would be, but just something with the charge circle. I don't know if I would make it bigger, smaller, but it's the hardest thing to officiate. And I know our refs do a really good job trying to do it. I just I think it, it makes it really hard. So trying to figure out something around the charge circle, I'm not sure what it would be, but something like that.
0: Interesting. That's always my favorite question because I think you're the second person to mention the charge circle, but everyone okay. gives a different answer because everyone something frustrates
1: yeah, that's a great question.
0: Individually. So Yeah. Coach Williamson, really, really appreciate all the time. As always on the double double, give the last word to our guests. You have anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of the University of Chicago community.
1: Yeah, no, I just I'm so grateful that you have me on the podcast and really excited to talk about you, Chicago, and excited to see where our program goes. Um I love our team and I'm I'm excited to start next week.
0: Yeah, we're but- pumped pumped for it hopefully there will be games to play for the maroon it's it's interesting you've been at two schools where the mascots are color Um, i
1: know people keep saying that to me
0: so that's great anyway coach really appreciate all the time and best of luck uh this year for the lady maroon
1: thank you thanks david
0: that'll do it for this episode of the double double if you like this podcast you can find us on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast or you can subscribe rate and review five stars would be much much appreciated you can also follow us on twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast we'll be back later this week till then take care and make it a great day